This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I'll get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend, Sean Lake, co-founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself, my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter, that has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code. They are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. 
And if you want to hear the full story behind Bub's Naturals and the courage of Glenn Doherty, listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bub's co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. Welcome to episode 607 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Dan Grunfeld. Now, Dan himself is a former basketball player, but he is also the son of NBA legend Ernie Grunfeld, who himself was an immigrant from Romania. What makes this multi-generational story even more powerful is Ernie's mother escaped Auschwitz, losing several of her family members in the process. And to add to the pertinence of this episode, I am releasing it on Yom HaShoah, which is the Israeli Holocaust Remembrance Day. So we discuss a host of topics from his grandmother's life in Transylvania, his father's immigration story, Dan's journey through basketball, the writing of his incredible biography, By the Grace of the Game, and so much more. Before we get to this interview, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 600 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dan Grunfeld. Enjoy. Well, Dan, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. James, thanks so much for having me. And I also want to say thank you to Phil White, a mutual friend for connecting us. Absolutely. Phil is the man. He is indeed, and a fellow Brit. Um, <laughs> so very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? So right now, I am in the greater Washington, D.C. area. My wife and I welcomed uh, our second baby boy a few weeks ago, and so uh, we, we are around family because my parents and her parents are in the D.C. area, but we're based in, in the Bay Area under normal circumstances. Beautiful. Yeah, congratulations again on that. Thank you. So I'd love to start speaking of babies at the very, very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Absolutely. And so I was born in northern New Jersey outside of New York City. And it's interesting. So my birth was planned around the NBA basketball schedule. And so my dad was a player for the New York Knicks and I was delivered by C-section. And so my parents scheduled my C-section delivery in between two of his road trips. So he went on one road trip. He was present for my birth. And then he went on another road trip and he was present for my bris which is the ritual of circumcision in the Jewish faith, you know, eight days after you're born. So I was quite literally uh, born into basketball, uh, Judaism. And so, uh, and I have an older sister, Rebecca. And so she's three years older than me. So uh, I know that, you know, your birth moving forward is, is an incredibly powerful story, but we really need to go back two generations. So tell me where your grandmother was born and then kind of walk me through her kind of early life. And then I'll just let you take the wheel as far as the storytelling and some of the incredible things that happened to her. Absolutely. And so you'll be happy to know my grandmother turns 97 in June. So it amazing. talks to her every day. Yeah, she lives in the Bay Area, 25 minutes from me and my wife. She's doing amazing. So 
She was born in Transylvania on the border of Romania and Hungary at a very small village called Mikola. Uh, she was born into an Orthodox Jewish family. So 10 siblings in total, two loving parents. She had, by all accounts, an idyllic childhood. You know, no technology, no running water, but a lot of love, a lot of laughter in her home. And, you know, of course, I, I have a book came out several months ago called By the Grace of the Game, right, which chronicles my family's journey. And it starts with kind of this story. And so I, I go into great detail about this. So I think very few people know as much about their grandmother's like formative years as I do, because I, you know, I, I wrote about it and I researched it so much. And so, yeah, she she grew up again in this area, in this region, Transylvania, Uh she happened to be visiting an older sister in Budapest when the Nazis invaded her hometown. And so she had a chance to survive. And so she, uh, she still tells a story where she got a letter from my great grandfather as soon as the Nazis invaded and it said, come home immediately. And so my grandmother and her sisters, cause she was staying with the, si the two sisters at the time, they packed their suitcases, you know, ready to go to the train station. And the following day, they got another letter that said, if you can stay, stay where you are. And that was the last communication my grandmother ever had with her father. The family was taken to Auschwitz. Uh, they were never heard from again. And my great grandfather's name was Solomon. And my oldest son, his name is Solomon after him. So, um, you know, my grandmother still tells stories about my great grandfather, but she says it was that second letter that saved her from Auschwitz because she thinks that her dad, who was a very wise man, realized at first he panicked and said, come home. But then he realized, you know, my daughters will have a better chance of surviving in a big city as opposed to being in our small village. And so, you know, my grandmother had a chance to survive. Now, when we think of Transylvania, we think of this creeper with slick back hair and a cloak and sharp teeth. <laughs> so what is right. she, it's, did she ever give you the impression of what actually it's like to grow up in Transylvania? And then also, what was the perspective of the Nazis going into that country? Because as you know about Hungary and Poland, some of the ones that are more notorious, but you don't think of you know Romania or Transylvania as much. Yeah, so the, the region that they're from, it went back and forth during the war. So it was Romania when my grandmother was born, and then it became Hungary during the war. You know, so it kind of went back and forth. It was a little bit of a disputed territory, and the Nazis didn't invade until late in the war. And, uh, you know, by all accounts from my grandmother, she just had a normal childhood. You know, at the time, of course, normal and, and that day and age is, is a lot different than what we consider normal now. But she speaks so lovingly about, about her childhood, about her siblings, about her parents, and you know, five of her siblings were killed in the Holocaust and both parents. Uh, I know, and you mentioned Dracula and the legend of Dracula. You know, my dad, who, of course, we'll talk about as well. He was also born in Transylvania in a little bit of a, a bigger city, but about 10, 15 minutes from the little small village my grandmother was from. And so he he also grew up there and he taught, you know, there's a legend of, of Dracula, you know, and, and Vlad the Impaler. And my dad is a big history buff. And so, of course, people associate Transylvania with, with Dracula and with vampires. And uh, there, there is kind of a deep legend behind that. And my dad's always happy to kind of tell people those, those stories. So let's go on that for a moment. If you've heard some of the stories, what through a Transylvania's, Transylvanian's perspective is the root of that legend? So my dad is, is, a, is an American at this point, right? But yes, born and raised in Transylvania and Romania. And so he, he really approaches it more from a historical lens. Like when you live there, you're not talking about Dracula. You know, it wasn't a thing that like, you know, you go to school and you're, you, you're talking about Dracula. But he, you know, since, of course, coming to the United States and, and kind of coming of age here has studied that history. And so, uh, yeah, you know, Vlad the Impaler was a very kind of brutal 
figure in history. And there's a lot of legends about some of the really vicious things he did. Um, there's also, you know, Dracula, I think it in, in either Hungarian or Romanian means son of Drac. And so there was this, this kind of brutal leader in, you know, many centuries ago who was Drac and his son was Dracula. And so I think like all these histories kind of melded together. And, and then of course the, the fictional version with Bram Stoker of Dracula kind of, you know, heightened the whole thing as well. Beautiful, yeah, because we've seen all kinds of vampires from the bald one with giant teeth to the sparkly ones of uh, earlier this millennium. No doubt. doubt. All right, well then, so again, walk me through, when I think of Budapest and that that era, I think of Dr. Edith Eager who I had on the show who was in Budapest and did find herself in Auschwitz. Her and her sister actually survived, which is incredible because there were so many near misses, so many opportunities where had she gone to one line instead of the other, she would have ended up, you know, in a chamber. She ended up becoming a psychologist, an amazing, amazing woman. So she gets the letter, don't try and come home, stay, stay in Budapest. What happens from there? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting what you said, because I reflect back now on this story. I mentioned my book. And if I read through it again, there are a dozen instances, like you mentioned, where if one thing happens differently, I'm not here. We're not talking right now. You know, and and it's funny because my grandma, she's so disciplined. She has this incredible will to survive. She she just has this fighting spirit. But she's the first one to say that you could have all that during during that point in time. And it didn't matter. You needed luck. You needed help. You needed circumstances. You know, so I, I totally, totally relate. Uh, so listen, my grandma, like I said, she was on the run in Budapest. She had a chance to survive. And so Raul Wallenberg is considered one of the greatest heroes of the Holocaust. A Swedish diplomat credited for saving roughly 100,000 Jewish lives in Budapest. Uh, my grandmother is one of them. And he actually saved my grandmother's life twice. The United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., it's on Raul Wallenberg Way. You know, so that just shows what, what a big figure he is. And so the first way is he issued protective passports called Schutz Passes, which were distributed to Jews in Budapest and kind of gave them a level of protection. So my grandmother obtained a pass for herself, but she also risked her life to get 17 passes for other people. So I always say, you know, my grandmother is my hero, but she's also a hero. And she really is. I mean, she risked her life to get passes for people who needed it. So that pass gave her a level of security for some time. And so she was hiding out and bombed out buildings and, you know, different kind of areas. There there was a rule that you never tell anyone that you meet where you're hiding. Because when Jews were caught by Nazis, they they kind of tortured them to get information about where other Jews were hiding. Right. So she just she kind of stayed very disciplined and, uh, you know, hid and, and did what she had to do. Eventually, that that Schutz Pass was no longer recognized. And so she was caught by the Nazis. She was put in the Budapest ghetto. And so she actually was reunited with one of her brothers in the ghetto. She had no idea where he was, but she learned in the ghetto that, you know, she met someone who was from his working camp. And she said, oh, I had a brother in that camp. Andy, did you know him? And she said, he's here. And so they reunited. She was able to be with her brother in the ghetto. And at the end of the war, you know, the Nazis stayed out of the ghetto. They let the Jews kind of administer life. And at the end of the war, my grandma and her brother saw 20 Nazis enter the Budapest ghetto with machine guns over their shoulders. And word quickly spread that they were there to kill the remaining 80,000 Jews left in the ghetto, right? 80,000. And so my grandma and her brother raced up the steps of the, uh, the building they were sleeping in. They found a small attic space and they hid in there. My grandmother still tells this story. You know, there were room for like four or five people. There were more than a dozen packed in, you know, fighting for their lives. 
They waited for like 10 minutes, 20 minutes, then an hour, nothing happened. And, you know, holding their breath, just waiting. Eventually they had someone go and check and the ghetto was clear. The Nazis had retreated. And soon after that, Romanian Russian soldiers liberated the ghetto and they were free to go. My grandma didn't know what happened. She didn't know why the Nazis retreated. At that moment, she wasn't really asking questions because she was free. So that's how she survived. That was in 1945. 40 years later, in 1985, when she was already living in the Bay Area, my dad was this huge basketball star. And how that happens is, of course, a, a story in and of itself. But my grandma lives in the United States, and they made a movie of Raul Wallenberg's life. It was called Wallenberg, A Hero's Story. And Richard Chamberlain played the title character, Raul Wallenberg. And it was in that movie that one of my grandmother saw the final scene of an order to kill the remaining Jews in the, in the ghetto. And it was an order from Adolf Eichmann. You know, it was one of the most notorious Nazis. He was in Budapest at the time. So Eichmann gave this order to kill the Jews in the ghetto. It was Wallenberg who raced to the ghetto, threw his car in park, confronted the general, the only person who had the ability to call off the massacre. And he said, the war is over. You will hang for this. Let these people go. They're innocent. And he talked, he talked the general out of the massacre. So it took my grandmother 40 years to learn that Wallenberg saved her life, not just once with the Schutzpass, but twice during the Holocaust. See, it's so incredible. And I think we talked about this when we were on the phone the other day. I, I just had a, um, a guest on Tier who his grandfather was in World War II. And, and this storytelling, I mean, your grandmother's still here, so she could tell it herself, which is, you know, mind blowing. But, uh, you know, some of these voices that we have now, are, are the few that we have left, so the next, you know, group that we have are the children and grandchildren of these amazing people. And it breaks my heart because when you're talking about Russians liberating a country, Right now, our screens are adorned with the opposite again. And this, this cycle of, of hate when tyranny is allowed to get in ruling positions, just, you know, is, is this, this, you know, constantly revolving thing that we see in history. And it really breaks my heart that we can have something like the Holocaust or some of these other horrendous, you know, genocides and tragedies. And yet, as a, as a nation, whatever country we're in, can't communicate in a way that rather than, that is enacted against another country that that own country has the power to stand up against tyranny and say, no, we're not going to do this. And you see pockets of that in Russia with these protests. But then we also know about the KGB and some of these other, you know, agencies that some of those protesters might not be on this earth anymore for all we know. No, it's true. And you, you read my mind, right? As I'm t recounting my grandmother's situation, hiding in an attic, you know, and, and hiding for her life, we turn on the news and we hear the same story today. You know, and you mentioned that it's it's the the subsequent generations at this point, it's their responsibility to tell the stories, right? That that generation of survivors is getting older. As I mentioned, my grandma was 17, 18 years old when she survived. She's 90, she'll be 97, as I mentioned, right? So, you know, and that's for me, you know, having written my book, that's a big part of it. I'm third generation. You know, it's on me now to kind of carry that that torch forward and to to tell these stories and for people to know what's at stake. Right. When 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 people are treated in this way. And again, like we turn on the news today and we see these scenes, like you said, it's heartbreaking. And we don't we don't learn our lessons from history. Right. We've seen through the Holocaust, like what people are capable of, what can happen when people aren't treated fairly. And we're you know, here we are in another kind of heartbreaking situation. It's awful. Yeah. And you see this this perpetual like vicious circle as well. And the perfect example is, you know, as you said, you mentioned you you come from a Jewish background. I've had people from a Palestinian background. We've got that. We've got two sides that generationally are killing us or in, in Ireland growing up in as in the UK. And 
the you know underlying reason for that was probably something completely disconnected but you just get this this multi-generational um hate that is bred through some people obviously not through all and i wonder if there's a certain point where as you said with the storytelling the original perpetrators of some of these conflicts are not even around and, and so some people are probably questioning why the hell they're even fighting yeah, anymore well, you know yeah why do we hate each other again right it's it's yeah, it's, it's the nature of mankind. And we've seen it, like you said, on every continent and, and in, so, in so many different instances. But again, that's why I think for us, like to try to be forces of good, to try to pe- treat people the right way, to try to tell stories, important stories, no, that's what we can do. Absolutely. Well, c- having all those experiences, you know, just at any moment thinking you're going to be round up and put on a train and then finding out that basically your entire family was wiped out that is certainly something that you you contribute to you know childhood trauma early life trauma so how does your grandma describe how she processed that how she dealt with it and was able to grow and you know to a point where obviously she she lived a long and fruitful life in the end yeah you know she it's interesting because there wasn't information then right so she didn't even know what was happening that you know there wasn't television there was there was misinformation on the radio and they didn't have access to the radio for much of the time. So when it wasn't until she got back that she learned how, what had happened to her family, you know, and, and she still says like they would go to the train station every day, just, just hoping, you know, that's, that someone would come home, you know, and she only had, as I mentioned, she had five siblings, including herself survived, five were killed. Um, one came back from Auschwitz. The others, you know, some were in forced labor camps. There were different situations, right. But only one came back from Auschwitz and, yeah, at the train station every day, just hoping uh, that someone would come. And so how do you put the pieces back together? You know, it's, it's, it's an unthinkable tragedy. You just have to put one foot in front of the other. I think what was really common at the time was to try to rebuild, to try to start a family, right? Because when you experience that much loss, I think that was the instinct just to, to, to build a family. And that's what my grandma did. And so my, my grandfather was also a Holocaust survivor. He was in a forced labor camp in Hungary. So he didn't have it easy, right? He's a prisoner, but he had it easier than my grandma. He's a six foot three, big strapping guy. He was kind of a semi-professional soccer player. He's actually a world-ranked ping pong player. So really good athlete. And they just put him to work. And so uh, he lost everyone in the Holocaust, parents, sisters, everyone. So when he got back, he had no one. But my grandma and my grandpa you know, they, they met and actually this is, it's a good story because people, you know, now the book's out and I'm speaking a lot. They say, okay, your, you know, your grandparents survived the Holocaust. Your dad became this big basketball player in the United States. Like put it all together. How does it all connect? Like, where did your grandparents meet? The truth is the day my grandmother got back from surviving, one of her brothers had survived. And so she found him at home and he said to her, we need to get you some clothes because all she had was a thin, the thin cotton dress and a ragged blue overcoat, raggedy blue overcoat that she had worn in Budapest. He said, we need to get you some clothes. They, he had been liberated several months prior. And he said, you know, my friend from the labor camp is from this area. When we got home, he opened up a store and they sell clothes nearby. Let's go to his store. So it was the day my grandmother got back from surviving the Holocaust that she walked through the doors of my grandfather's store. Right. So they literally met that day and, uh, you know, got together, started a family. You know, my uncle was born shortly thereafter. My dad was born eight years later. So my, my uncle's quite a bit older than my dad. But that's, that's how, how they tried to manage, you know, try to rebuild, try to focus on your family, on, you know, the love, the love that was taken away from you and your heart, you know, try to, try to redirect it towards other people. And so 
know, that that's what they tried to do. I mean, you just have to put one foot in front of the other. So you, you said something as well a minute ago about, you know, that we wouldn't be having this conversation had, you know, one of those roads gone to, to the Nazis. I, a couple of things. Firstly, I took my son back home to England and there was an amazing, um, Auschwitz Museum in the, oh my goodness. I think it was the National War Museum in London. If I got that right, Imperial War Museum. That's the name of it. Um, and there was an incredibly powerful picture of, I think it was a group of families, but you had the original survivors and then you had their children and you had their grandchildren. And when you add up, let's say 20 survivors, then it ends up being hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, and another very, very powerful video that I remember sharing a while ago, I think it was Edward Swinton was his name, but I might have that wrong. Okay. They surprised it. It looked like it was back in probably the 70s, but it was kind of like an award ceremony and, and this gentleman was there and he was old now. Um, and the announcer told him, everyone in this theater was one of the children that you saved during the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah, yeah I had seen that. And it's again, amazing. an entire theater of people, you know? So that's what I think we forget is we look at the statistics of this is how many people died. Well, times that by, you know, 10, 20, whatever, is how many generations you actually have lost during that one solitary event. It, it's so true. It's exponential. You know, I just I just had another son, right? So I have two sons and, you know, I have a sister and she has a family. And yeah, and again, like, you know, people go on, the families go on to achieve things and, and do things in this world. And yeah, there was, there would have been so many more of those stories, but, you know, people were wiped out. And yeah, that's, it's one of the greatest tragedies. So what was their perception of Romania and or Transylvania um, or Budapest? In the years after this, I mean, you had this horrific invasion, you had this genocide. What, you know, how were these countries able to to um, grow again? Because I know at one point, Romania became under the communist regime again, as did Hungary. And that's right. And so it was as I, like Transylvania was Hungary during the war. It was Romania prior. And then it went back to Romania. So when my dad was born, he was born in Romania and un yeah, under communism. And that was brutal. Right. And so. You know, and, and in my book, like I tell my my family story kind of chronologically and it alternates with my story. And, you know, I go through all these this depth of the Holocaust. Right. I mean, that nothing is more serious than surviving the Holocaust. But then you have a decade plus under communism. You know, So it's like for my grandparents, like, man, it, it just didn't it didn't stop. You know, life life didn't it got easier, certainly. Right. Because nothing can compare to the Holocaust, but it didn't get easy. Brutal. I mean, my, and again, my grandma still talks about it, particularly in relation to what we're seeing today on the news, right? When we see some of the same forces, uh, just about, you know, living under communism and, you know, the brutality. I mean, she had friends jailed, tortured, killed for speaking one word against the government, you know, not allowed to have anything, not allowed to, there's no dreams, there's no hope, there's no future, right? I mean, for, for my family, they had each other. And so it's funny because I, I talked to my dad about his childhood. And I, I said to him when I was researching my book, I said, hey, man, like, what was it like to grow up so poor? And he said, I didn't grow up poor. You might think I did because you grew up you know, in a suburb of an affluent suburb of New York City and you were used to something else. But I just grew up as a kid with loving parents and a, and a loving brother, you know. And so I think that they tried to really lean on each other. To, to find a meaningful life, but in a very difficult circumstance. I mean, yeah, br brutal, 
brutal life under communism. So when you were talking about that, it just hit me as well. The last couple of years, we really saw the mental health impact of when a society loses its autonomy. And we saw people ordered to stay all over the world, ordered to stay in, you know, don't, you can't go to a restaurant, you can't go to the gym, um, you know, just order your stuff in, they'll bring it to your house, stay in the house, you know, be good citizens. And that was two years and it really wasn't a communist regime by any means, but there was certainly a little, little taste test there for a lot of countries. I wonder what the mental health look like or the looks like today under some of these regimes because the lack of autonomy is one of the most dangerous contributing factors to, you know, mental ill health and suicide. Without a doubt. I mean, I could just relate from, you know, what I learned from my, my grandmother and, and doing this research. And yeah, it strips you of hope. You know, there there because and you know, my my grandfather was able to transact on the black market in order to save up money. And, and I write in the book, right? It was illegal, but it wasn't shameful. It was the only way to live. And so, you know, that, that's what you had to do. You have to start doing things, you know, kind of uh, under the table in order to just have any type of life. But to your point about mental health and yeah, it, it, it just strips you of your identity, of your hopes and dreams, of, of striving for something, you know, as we wake up in the morning and we're excited by, by setting goals and, and you know, wanting to achieve that that didn't exist for them. They just wanted to survive. There wasn't there wasn't meat in the stores. You know, they had to my my grandmother had to get black market meat for you know they they had to kind of like do things in in a way to to elite to have enough to survive, let alone to dream, to strive, and to thrive. So yeah, mental health wise, like of course that's going to take its toll on you. And it took my family more than a decade to get passports to be able to leave, and they fled as refugees. You know, you can't leave. That's one thing like, you know, I, I, as I'm researching my book and I'm, I'm like, so, hey, why didn't, you know, like, why did you, they said, why didn't we leave? Where are we going to go? You can't leave. They don't let you, you know, like literally people are making decisions for you. You know, they, they weren't allowed to leave. And they finally, after a long, hard decade, were able to get out. Well, when we talk about immigration, I obviously came from the UK where I wasn't fleeing anything. I, I ended up marrying a girl from here. I'd worked here for many, many summers before that. I love this country, the country itself, not all the people, but certainly the country. <laughs> um, of course. And, uh, you know, so I truly had this vision of the American dream of just, you know, a little piece of land and a roof over my family's head and raise the kids. And, and then, um, you know, again, fast forward to a couple of years ago, you get a very kind of anti-American rhetoric where, you know, it's, it's, we're an oppressive regime. We're a country full of racists and all this kind of stuff, which is complete BS. And I, it's, it's hard to explain to people when you've come from another country what that's like, that, you know, the American dream, that hope of somewhere else. Well, my, perspective is very very mild compared to young grandparents so what was their journey out of uh you know romania and then how did it ultimately end up in the u.s for them yeah so they initially got passports to go to israel so the state of israel paid money for each jew to be able to leave romania so to flee communism so they were able to leave because of that and they were bound for israel and so they sp- and by the way, I mentioned all that money that uh, my grandfather was able to save up on the black market. They had a thousand dollars worth of Romanian money and four thousand American dollars 
which even if you were if if the communists found out that you had that money, you were in big big trouble. I mean, to the point of like killed, tortured, jailed. It was that dangerous. But you know, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors, so they they took risks. And so uh, when they left Romania, they were not allowed to take anything of value out of the country. Not only were they not allowed to even have the money, they certainly weren't allowed to take it out. Uh, my grandparents got every cent of money out of the country, both the Romanian money and the American dollars. So uh, that's a little teaser. You can read in the book how it happened, but I'll tell you, the American dollars, they were supported by one of the biggest comedic celebrities in the United States who helped them smuggle their money out. So it's a really an amazing some story. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Uh, they were able to leave in 1964. They spent six months in Rome. And so they were, you know, they were bound for Israel, but they had a stopover in Rome and they had an opportunity to come to the United States. You know, and I mentioned my uncle, he was dating a girl in Romania who went to, who went to the United States. And so my grandpa said, I want to go to America. And my grandma said, I don't care. We're going to Israel. That's where, that's where our, you know, the majority of the family was. But when my uncle said, I want to go to America, she says, you know, I could say no to your grandpa, but I couldn't say no to your uncle. And so they, uh, they spent six months in Rome and they were able to get to the United States. And it was a, an organization called Highest Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society who helped them get, you know, get all their documents in order and get to the United States. And Highest today is still doing this type of work to help refugees. You know, their, their slogan is uh, protect the refugee, you know, or something along those lines. And of course, nowadays, like in Europe, there haven't been as many refugees in Europe uh, as there are today since since this the time of, of World War II, right? So Hyas is still doing that work. And yeah, it was that organization that helped my my family, you know, get get their uh, green cards and arrive in New York City in 1964. Now, what was the environment they arrived into? I mean, you know, there are some periods in time where certain, you know, individuals from certain countries or certain religions weren't as well received, or certain six skin colors as well. What was their experience? Was there, was there kind of any element of anti-Semitism, or was it was it pretty uh, accepting, being the the smorgasbords of cultures that New York City was? You know, after surviving the Holocaust, fleeing communism, New York City, they were good with that. You know what I mean? They were they were happy there, and not not to say that there aren't challenges and problems because there are everywhere, but really it was assimilation. You know, because for think about my dad, not nine years old, didn't speak a word of English, leaving all his friends behind, leaving his motherland behind. Right. This it's that kind of story. And so for my and for my grandparents, they had a little bit of money that they were able, as I said, to smuggle out. Right. And uh, but they needed to they were not educated, not formally. They were educated in the school of life big time. But the because of the Holocaust, they weren't able to go to school. Right. So it's like, OK, we need to build a life now. So. My grandfather got a job painting houses in Connecticut. You know, they they were staying with family in the Bronx in New York City. So my grandfather's painting houses. My grandmother is working at a t-shirt factory. You know, they're they're just trying to to make make some money. And my dad's trying to assimilate. And for him, he was really picked on and made fun of. You know, because he he didn't speak the language. He didn't have any friends. You know, he he tells a story. He's a he's a very very big guy as an adult. He was always a very big big you know human, and when they first got to America, my grandparents, you know, wanted him to have something to do. So they would give him money to go to a movie theater, even though he didn't understand the words, but just to do something. And, you know, I think it was a dollar total, 50 cents for the movie ticket and 50 cents for snacks. But he, and, and he was a kid, but he was so big that they didn't believe he was a kid. 
And so they charged him full price and he wasn't able to speak English well enough to tell them. And so he wasn't able to have any snacks, right? So he sat in the movie theater alone, no snacks, you know, that's kind of the, the fish out of water story for him. And, and he was, you know, made fun of by kids and things like that. And so it was an adjustment. And, you know, so the hardest part of it, and I, I've talked about my uncle a bit. So, you know, when, so what my dad called my uncle in Hungarian translates in English to my king. That's how much my dad, you know, so he's eight years older, as I said, you know, for, for a little brother to call big brother, my king, right. You can understand what that is. And, uh, my uncle was diagnosed with leukemia a few months after arriving in the United States, right? So they got to this country, they had a chance to build a new life. But then for my grandparents, their oldest son gets sick. And for my dad, his older brother gets sick. And so my uncle passed away within a year. And so despite all the tragedy of the Holocaust and all those loss, that's probably the biggest tragedy, you know, for my grandparents to lose a son, for my dad to lose his brother, you know, that's a hole that can't be filled. And I'm named after my uncle. I mentioned my son being named after my great-grandfather. My middle name is Leslie. My uncle's name was Lutzi in, in Hungarian, but Leslie in English. I'm named after him. You know, and I write very honestly in my book about that obligation, you know, how I carry that with me. And you know, I said that my, my book is called By the Grace of the Game. And be, and I, we we named it that for a reason, because it was after my uncle's death where my dad, you know, this immigrant kid, son of Holocaust survivors, you know, made fun of in New York City, he just needed something, you know, he needed something to belong to. So he started going to the playgrounds in New York City, you know, he was, he was living in Queens, New York, that's what they did, they went to the park, and he started playing basketball. And, and by the grace of the game, you know, a lot happened after that, but it was really basketball that that saved his life at that point. Yeah, it's so sad as well. I remember hearing a story of, uh, it was a couple, I think, that escaped. I think it was Belfast. And they finally went to a really quiet area in the English countryside and got murdered by a psychopath uh, in the village. You know, I mean, there's sometimes you look at these and, and you hear people say, oh, everything happens for a reason. It's things like this that you go, that, that's really hard to, to digest that that was for a reason, that someone you know, goes through all that, escapes all that tragedy, finally finds safety and then gets a, a childhood disease that takes their life. So that's tragic. Yeah. It was, it, it was, I mean, and it's, yeah, cr crushing loss and for everyone, you know, so when we talk about my family's early life in America, right. And, and I always say like, they were living the American dream just by being here because they had a chance to work for a living for their, for my grandparents, for their kids to get an education and to have freedom and to become something, you know, so that in and of itself is the American dream. But then for, for this to happen, you know, for, for my uncle to get sick and to die, you know, 17 years old. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the backdrop. And that's where my dad found himself as kind of an at-risk immigrant youth in the United States. Well, going back to your movie theater story, just for a second, you can tell how things have changed because back then it was 50 cents for the ticket and 50 cents yeah. for the snacks. <laughs> and today it's probably like 50 cents for the ticket and about $20 for the snacks. So yeah, it's like $6 <laughs> for the water. So don't get that bottle of water. <laughs> All right. Well then, so with sport, it's very interesting. I had a, a guy on who's Australian SAS, I think I've got that right, Harry Moffat, um, and he would take a cricket bat with him, you know, while he was deployed, and they would play with, you know, Afghanis and and all kinds of people, but some of which they may or may not have actually been warring with, you know, prior to or after. But that was a unifying element. You think about the the treaty in World War One, where the Germans and the English had a football game, soccer game, so. Talk to me about 
how we first found basketball and how that language kind of surpassed the actual spoken word and then and then how that took him to the incredible place that that sport you know led him to yeah and i'm glad you use the word language because it's, it's a big theme in the book and the story because as i meant my dad came to america fluent in hungarian romanian and italian didn't speak a word of english right but like like you said and then of course suffering this loss that we just talked about but basketball is the in sport in general, right? It is a universal language. We always say in my family, like the ball, right? The basketball doesn't care what language you speak, what country you're from, what color your skin is, what religion you are. It doesn't care. It just brings people together. And and the game was really that for my dad. You know, it was it was an escape. I don't think he would have flown so high so fast if he if the game wasn't taking him away from all these really painful things. Um, so, you know, and he always says that you know if that's how you made friends in the neighborhood. You know, in Queen, you know, Forest Hills, Queens, New York City. said, if you could play basketball, that's what kids did. And that's how you kind of made friends. He said, the better you were at, at basketball, the more friends you made, you know. And so for him, it was just we all want to belong to something. You know, we all we all want something to belong to. And that's what it was for him. And it's interesting because my grandparents didn't see my dad play basketball until he was 17 years old. You know, and so for me, like I grew up privileged, my Mom drove me to every game since I was in second grade. My dad was there. My sister, you know, like my dad grew up so different. His parents didn't see him play until he was a junior in high school. They just knew that he was doing it a lot, that he was, you know, always at the park, that he was playing, he was playing for the high school that, but, you know, they, given their backgrounds, right, surviving the Holocaust, then communism, they didn't think about sport as like a career, right, or something that, that they were possible. They just thought of it as a recreational activity. And so, they, you know, they opened up a fabric store in the Bronx. They work seven days a week. My grandfather, seven days, my grandmother, six days on Sunday, she would cook for the week clean, you know, so she, you could call that seven days a week as well. And they were just working to build another life. And so they got a call at their store one day and it was my dad's high school coach. And he said, you know, it was my grandma who answered and he said, you know, Mrs. Grunfeld, you should come watch your son play basketball, you know? And, and the reason they hadn't been is because my dad's games were at four o'clock in the afternoon. And in order to go, my grandparents would have had to close their store. And they're workaholics, right? They're trying to build a life in America. Like, they're not closing the store early. That's their, that's their lifeblood, right? So, so they had not been. And so the following week after receiving that call, they closed their store. They went to the gym to watch my dad play. But they didn't close the store too early, right? They wanted to squeak out every last bit. And so when they got to the gym, the door was closed and they, and the gym was locked and, and the usher at the door said, sorry, you know, gym is full. The game started. We can't let you in. And my grandparents' English wasn't very good. And my grandfather said, you know, we're, we're guests of coach. We're parents of player. The usher said, listen, man, there's nothing we can do for you. I'm sorry. The gym is closed. And for whatever reason, my grandma, you know, she kind of like steadied herself, tried to like get her, the, her best version of English. And she said, you know, our, my, my, our son is Ernie Grunfeld. She just said my, my dad's name. The usher's eyes lit up. He said, well, why didn't you say that to begin with? You know, and he, he opened the door. He brought him into the gym. You know, I, I, uh, I, I tell this story, of course, in the book. And actually, you know, there were excerpts from the book that were in certain places. And this was the main excerpt because it's such a it's a story that says so much. You know, it's so symbolic and it's it's it means so much. But, you know, my grandparents walked in the gym and they kind of this is the first time they looked around. My grandpa nudged my grandma, and in Hungarian, of course, he said, "Well, if Ernie is so good, why isn't he on the court? Why isn't he playing?" And my grandma grabbed him, and she said, "Look right there, that's Ernie, right in the middle of the court." 
my grandpa could not recognize his son, you know, and it's like so symbolic, that transformation literally before his eyes, right? He was this kid who came to America, didn't speak the language, was picked on, lost his brother. He never, my grandpa never imagined he would see this powerful figure. You know, I mentioned my dad's very big, right? As a grown man, he's six foot six, you know, and in high school already, he was 225 pounds. So this is a very big guy, but things had changed, you know, and, and uh, my grandpa used to make my dad come to their fabric store every Saturday to work, which my dad, you know, didn't, didn't love doing that. And on the floor after that game, he said to him, you never come to the store again. You know, you just, just work on your basketball. We'll take care of the rest. And so a year later, my dad was an all American basketball player. He's one of the most highly recruited players in the country, you know? And so uh, it just shows you like how fast things can happen. And again, when I said the title of my book, by the grace of the game, you can see, you know, and for my grandparents, you know, to be able to see their youngest son, right. Their only surviving son, right. For the game to do this for the, for him, for the family, it's, it just means the world. Now, what was it that enabled him to reach such a high level? Cause I mean, when you think of a lot of American sports, usually kids are playing them very, very young. So you have a kid that physically may be a good fit for that sport, but is way behind the curve probably with the skill set. So what 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 allowed him to surpass so many kids that had a basketball in their hands for years? It's a great question. So sir, first of all, I think there's some sort of like karma and sometimes things just happen, right? Sometimes things are meant to be, sometimes things click. This is one of those stories, you know, because it's just, it's almost too good to be true how it happened, you know? So there's just some like cosmic element where, where it just happened. So if, if you want to like dig into it, there is a piece of like the athleticism, right? My dad's like this humongous person has skill, very kind of, he just, you know, he's a good athlete, great hand-eye coordination, competitive. Like he just kind of had the skill set that translated to a good basketball player cutting deeper. And I think you have to cut deeper basketball. Like I said, saved him. And he was, he was moving away from things that are so painful. We don't, we don't want to consider, right? Like my dad never had grandparents. They were all killed in Auschwitz, right? He, he fled his homeland as a refugee. He had communist officers patting him down and shouting at him as he boarded a train to leave his homeland, gets to America, loses his brother and his hero. This is, this is a hard background, but it was, you know, so it's like when you find something precious, be, be, it, it, it took him away from those things. And, and that was part of it. He he had laser focus on the game because it brought him away from all those hard things. So I think it was a combination of all of it. And by the way, New York City, too. If he would have gone to who knows, right, like an, another another place, another time, it might not have happened. But basketball and New York City go hand in hand, particularly like Queens, New York, like that's just what you did. And so, and, you know, you developed a sense of toughness, you know, playing at the playground. And I think combining that with the work ethic that he observed from my grandparents, you know, they lost their son, they weren't educated, they built a really nice life in America by just through hard work, elbow grease, discipline. He, He knew those values. So he was actually equipped with a lot. He knew what it took. And with a con- when those things kind of combined, it, it, it was it was a you know a very, very tough combination for for his competition because as I said, like he was listen, my dad was a good NBA player. He was a great legendary college player and he was a great legendary high school basketball player. you know and I think it, it just kind of all happened for him. It's amazing. I know another kind of not ironic thing, that's the wrong word, but 
uh, just just a a real really powerful moment in one of the chapters of his life as he stood on a podium with a, a medal around his neck. So kind of walk me from the the school area to how he found himself in the Olympics. Absolutely. So again, my dad was recruited by all the big colleges back then. You know, New York City was a hotbed of basketball and the best players from the city, a lot of them went down south. You know, they called it the pipeline to the south. And so my dad went to the University of Tennessee and he was a, you know, four-time first-team All-SEC player. He, you know, graduated as the school's all-time leading scorer and the second leading scorer in the history of the SEC. So he was just incredible college basketball player. He teamed up with another New Yorker, Bernard King, who's a legendary, he led the NBA in scoring, Hall of Famer. Bernard's a year younger than my dad, but He's from Brooklyn. My dad's from Queens. Uh, they were called the Ernie and Bernie show. They were both two just incredible college basketball players. So here my dad was as this you know, immigrant who didn't even speak the language. Now, all of a sudden, he's he's a superstar. He's on the cover of Sports Illustrated, him and Bernard. It was called, they, it was said, Double Trouble from Tennessee. You know, it was my dad and Bernard King. And uh, back then, you know, for an athlete, that was like being on the cover of Time magazine. You know, now Sports Illustrated isn't quite the same, but but back then it was it was a really big deal. And so... Yeah, it, it just, it, again, it just kind of happened. And he had an opportunity to represent the United States. He was one of the best players in the country. And so the first time he represented the United States, he was kind of in this international competition. There's actually a really funny story that I tell in my book where they were going overseas, I think, to, you know, at the time, Czechoslovakia and Italy and, and other places to play. And for one of the last, during one of the last practices, the coaches said, okay, guys, like we're going overseas. Please bring your passports to practice tomorrow because we're traveling. And after practice, my dad went up to the coach. He said, listen, I don't have a passport, but I have, I have a green card. And the coach said, what? He said, yeah, like, I don't, I don't have a passport. He said, well, you're from New York, right? And he said, well, not originally. You know? So my dad wasn't a citizen. He was, he was ready to play for Team USA, but he wasn't an American. And so uh, it took my grandparents 10 years to become, you know, to get to America. It took my dad 24 hours to get his citizenship because, you know, he was going to play for, for Team USA. And so... They flew him to D.C. His papers were filled out. They got him his passport. He went back. So he played in that competition. Then he played in the Pan Am Games. And then in 1976, he had an opportunity to try out for the Olympic team. So Dean Smith from the University of North Carolina was the head coach of the team, you know, legendary coach. And uh, my dad, there was, I think, 65, maybe 70, 80 players, I think, trying out for the team, you know, 10 or 12 made it. And uh, my dad was one of the players who made it. And so this time, you know, they just – we could pause, you know, and just think about, cause I gave the context of my family and my grandparents with the fabric store, not speaking the language, my dad's kind of fish out of water story in America. Here he is now as an Olympian wearing the stars and stripes. Right. So again, like my book, right. By the grace of the game, like this is really a one in a million type of situation. And it was basketball that did this for my family. So my grandparents closed their stores for store now for two weeks, not just for, you know, an afternoon, they closed their store for two weeks. They drove from Queens, New York to Montreal, Canada, and they were in attendance when my dad became a gold medalist. And so he stood on top of the podium wearing the stars and stripes, an Olympic gold medal placed around his neck. And my grandma still talks about it. She says, everyone was crying. Everyone, you know, like, because they were sitting with all the parents and the coaches and everyone was crying just because that's the culminate. You know, it means so much, you know, and particularly for my family, for my dad from where he came from for where my grandparents, what they went through, you know, for that to happen. Yeah. That's, that's, you know, again, sometimes truth is, is stranger and more amazing than fiction. Well, again, going back to what I said before, some of the kind of anti-American feeling that I witnessed, 
seem to be stemming largely from a lack of gratitude, a lack of appreciation of what we have. But an important thing to counter that when you look at the very, very, very pro-American element is there's a lot of flag-waving, chest-beating, calling ourselves the greatest country in the world without putting any freaking work into it whatsoever. So what I'm hearing from, you know, your family's uh, story, for example, is that you get that pride from, in your case, being from, you know, in a very, very tragic position, but also putting so much into this country and therefore creating the pride. So what, if anything, does, does your dad's perspective on being an American, on, on the pride and patriotism that, that he feels coming from another nation, escaping the Nazis, escaping communism, and then ultimately representing the U.S. with a gold medal around his neck. Yeah, I mean, of course, he, he, he's very proud of, of the achievement. He's very grateful. You know, as my, you know, my grandfather passed away when I was a baby, but my grandmother still talks about coming to America from what they had been through in the Holocaust and in communism and, and the opportunities here at the same time, you know, many things can be true at the same time, right? So there can be incredible opportunity. This can be the land of opportunity. There's the American dream can live. There can also be a lot of contradictions and a lot of problems. And those things are true. And, and my dad acknowledges it. My grandmother acknowledges it, you know, my grand, and I write this in my book, you know, my my grandma still says, you know, there are a lot of problems here, but I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I've been I've been elsewhere, you know, and and there's a lot in America. There's a lot of beautiful things. Of course, what what this country did for my family in and of itself is beautiful and that that level of opportunity. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of pride in being American. There's a lot of gratitude, but there's also an acknowledgement that, yeah, we have challenges here and and, and they're real. And that can be true. And there can also, this can also be a land of opportunity at the same time for, for many people. So what, if, if they were asked that question, what would be some of the issues that they do see? And what would some of the solutions that they would bring to that? Because I mean, that's what I'm pertaining to with the chess beating. There are so many great countries around the world. Some do some areas really well and some areas poorly and vice versa. My thing is, you know, if we all actually dropped our egos, had some humility and shared from each other, we could lift all the countries up. So coming from that background, what are some of the areas that they think maybe that we can improve on here? And it's because, again, that's not that's not not having gratitude for where you are. It's caring so much about your country that you want to help it improve. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I don't think anyone has all the answers, you know, and there's there's no like snap of a finger or anything like that. And I think I think what I've always learned from my grandmother, from my, my dad, like thinking about it in terms of like, what, what can I do, right? So, so modeling the values that you want to see in the world, sure, in America, but also just in the world, treating people fairly, you know, be, being a good person, standing up, not only for yourself, but for others. And, and I know that, and, and my grandma always preached that, like as, as Jewish people and, and, you know, for her suffering in the Holocaust and knowing that there was a point in history where w we needed voices and there weren't enough of them. You know, so to be a voice, to stand up for what's right, you know, I think those are always kind of like the the values that I was raised with that I, that I, you know, try to, will pass down to, to my kids. And, you know, I, I think that they're, listen, like the world is complicated. You know, the, the, again, there's a lot of things that we do well in America. There's a lot of things that, you know, we, we don't, we miss the mark, you know, we fall short, you know, we are 
our values are for all people to be treated equally. We don't always see that. You know, I think we we just want to strive to do the best we can. And I think, you know, just again, modeling the type of those type of behavior, being the type of people that we want to see is, is the best we can do as individuals. Yeah, absolutely. It was just always a unique perspective. You know, it's one thing when you're born and bred in a country, but it's another one where you come from somewhere else. But then it's another one again where you literally have fled for your life and come here. So I think it's an important voice to hear. No, I mean, listen, there, there is deep gratitude, and, and um, yeah, and how could there not be? You know, when you when you come to to America, and and again, my my family had a chance to be educated, to work for a living, you know, and again, my grandma still talks about what life was like under communism forget the, the holocaust was done now they, they you know my my dad grew up under communism so you know talking about just like you said kind of how constricting that is and the lack of possibility uh, you know so to come to a country where those things do exist i mean they exist in different proportions for different people which is which is a big problem for us which of course we, we always you know hope that things get better uh but yeah, I mean, th there has to be a sense of gratitude when, when you've gone through so much. So speaking of America, obviously the pinnacle in the basketball world, and I'm not well-versed in that, so I'm not even going to pretend to, you know, throw names and, and dates at you. Um, but your dad went from the Olympic stage then into the NBA and ultimately to a management position. So what was that journey for him? Yeah, it's funny because, like, my my grandparents certainly like they didn't think about professional sports you know they weren't you know about oh you get paid to play basketball that they didn't grow up with that notion even though my grandfather as i mentioned was a world ranked ping pong player but they they, they weren't thinking about that right it, it just all kind of happened and here my dad was one of the best players in the country and as i said he graduated from the university of tennessee as the second leading scorer in the history of the sec which is one of the best conferences for basketball and by the way, that was 1977. To this day, he's the fifth leading scorer in the history of that conference. So oh, really? I mean, he really, yeah, I mean, he really had a, this legendary career. He was he was projected to be between the eighth and the twelfth pick in the NBA draft, and the New York Knicks had the tenth pick. You know, and here's a guy who you know Queens, New York. You know, he he was just saying, oh, the, you know, some like do dreams really come true to this degree, right? For the Knicks to draft him, and so. And I write about this in the book because it was fun because like throughout this research process and I did a year and a half of research, I asked so many questions I never would have asked. And it was really cool to hear my dad talk about like what he was thinking about being drafted into the NBA as a 22 year old kid. And like he was just like hoping for the New York Knicks at number 10. Uh, the Boston Celtics had the 12th pick. And, you know, that's close to New York. It's one of the most storied franchises. And uh, so he said, listen, if the Knicks don't take me at 10, I'd be OK with the, with the, the Celtics at 12. The Milwaukee Bucks had the 11th pick, and he didn't know much about Milwaukee, but, uh, you know, that, that wasn't his, uh, you know, he was kind of hoping that that didn't happen. And, uh, you know, back then the NBA draft wasn't even televised. So he was just like taking a nap at, at his parents' apartment when he got a call from his agent. And he said, was it New York? He said, no, it was close. You know, you were the pick after Milwaukee. You know, so he was the 11th pick in the, in the NBA draft and he went to the Milwaukee Bucks. But I'm glad he did because, again, I, met, I said earlier, like, I wouldn't be here if something, you know, something wouldn't have happened during the Holocaust. Like, I wouldn't be here if he wouldn't have gone to Milwaukee because that's where my parents met. My mom is born and raised in Milwaukee. So, you know, everything happens for a reason. So, you hear a lot of people that play in the NBA, you know, they're very successful and then transition out. But very, very few play and then enter the management side and, and become GM. So, so, what level of success did he achieve in the NBA and then what made him – 
decide and have the skills to then stay within that organization? So, as I mentioned, he was an amazing high school basketball player, an amazing college basketball player. He was a solid NBA player. He wasn't a star. He was a role player. So he had a, he had a good NBA career, nine years, had some really good moments, but he, he was a role player. And he, he finished out his career with the New York Knicks. So at least you know, he did get back to New York. He wore number 18 for the Knicks. So in Judaism, you know, number 18 is a symbolic number. And so, you know, that was kind of special for him. You know, he's the only player, not only in NBA history, but the only athlete in the history of the four major American sports leagues whose parents survived the Holocaust. He's the only one. And so to wear number 18 for the New York Knicks, you know, it was, was pretty cool. And it's ironic because, so my dad's, when he retired as a player, you know, the organization saw that he was, you know, he had a really good head on his shoulder, shoulder, smart guy, very likable, really knew the game. So they wanted to keep him in the organization. So his first job was as the broadcaster. So he broadcast Nick games on the radio. But it's ironic because when he came to the United States, to New York City as an immigrant, my grandparents wanted him to go to a yeshiva, which is like a kind of a school that specializes in Jewish, you know, Jewish education, secular education. Um, that yeshiva was in the Bronx, but he was denied entrance because he didn't speak English. He couldn't even get into school because he didn't speak English. And here he is, a legendary high school, New York City high school basketball player who played for the Knicks. Now he's announcing the games on the radio, you know, so it kind of was like coming full circle. Uh, he did that for a few years. They made him an assistant coach and they quickly realized that he had a lot of management potential. My dad, he has a tremendous amount, like he, he just has natural leadership qualities. He just knows how to handle people, how to communicate. Again, he's a smart guy. He knows the game of basketball so well. He is a tenacious hard worker. And that goes back to what he saw from my grandparents coming to America, building a life, you know? So I think a combination of all those things, the, the New York Knicks, the, the ownership, the management team at the time, they saw something in him. And so they moved him into management and he rose very quickly. And within a few years, he was running the team. He was the general manager of the team. And so, again, like to harken back, like he used to take, after my uncle passed, he would take the subway alone and me and my grandfather would take the subway from the, from their fabric store and they'd meet at Madison Square Garden. They would buy the cheapest tickets in the house because that's what they could afford, you know, as immigrants. And they would sit in the bleachers and watch the Knicks. And so here's my dad. Not only did he play for the Knicks, now he's running the team, you know? So it, it's a pretty amazing story. And he just, you know, had a great way with people, knows the game so well. So he just had tremendous success as an executive, you know, built two Nick teams that went to the NBA finals, was the general manager of the Milwaukee Bucks for several years, was the general manager and president of the Washington Wizards for 17 seasons. So I think he's one of the longest tenured lead executives in NBA history. So really a storybook career off the basketball court as well. And, you know, he's doing it all in his second language, right? I mean, like my friends would come over and my dad just sounds like a New Yorker, but then they'd hear him talking to my grandmother on the phone in Hungarian. And they're like, wait a second, you know what, what language is that, that your dad's speaking? And I'm like, you know what, don't worry about it. There's a, there's a long history here. It took me five years to write this book. Now that like, now the whole story is out there, you know, but throughout my whole life, there was always kind of, you know, these, these signs of it. When he was working either college or, or, or probably more often in the um, NBA, did he have the opportunity to travel to any of the places that he'd lived prior? Not lived because, he, well, maybe he went to Rome, right? Because he did spend six months in Rome. Uh, and yeah, so he, he did travel to Rome, but he didn't go back to the village that he's from in Romania. You know, they, they fled Romania under some pretty difficult circumstances. I... I've been back. So I actually played for the Romanian national team 
you know, my dad and I kind of had intersecting trajectories. I played collegially at Stanford. I had a good career. Was kind of like a borderline NBA overseas player. I made my career in Europe, but so I actually played for Romania, whereas my dad started in Romania, played for the United States. You know, uh, so but he, so he never went back to to Transylvania, but he did do a clinic when he was playing in the NBA in Hungary, in Budapest, and he did the clinic in Hungarian, and so that was pretty cool. You know, they said, oh, like Ernie should go to Hungary and do do a clinic there in Hungarian, and he did, and you know, the, the city of Budapest is really important to my family because that's where my grandma survived. You know, she was in the Budapest ghetto. You know, she she fought for her life and survived there. So for my dad to go back there now as an NBA basketball player, do a clinic for young Hungarian kids in their native language in the city, you know, that his grandma, his mom survived the Holocaust. It's, it's pretty, pretty remarkable. No, it's amazing. I mean, this must, that must have been amazing. Like you said, standing on the podium, you know, representing America must have been amazing. Um, managing the basketball team that used to watch in Madison Square Garden must have been amazing. There's so many elements of the story. So let's get to you then. So you're born um, without assuming when you were, you know, younger and school age, were you just playing basketball? Were there other sports that you were loving at that time? I wasn't loving them, but I was playing them. So like, you know, just, as a lot of kids who grow up, you know, I, I played soccer, I played baseball, but it's funny because I was talking about this with my wife recently, because, you know, our son has recently started taking a soccer class. So she's asked me, did you play soccer? And, and I said, you know, I played soccer until I was in sixth grade. And the first day of practice, someone kicked it to me in front of the goal and I caught it like a basketball, like in a position to shoot it, the soccer ball, you know? And I was like, okay this is a signal that like, I'm probably not built for this game, right? <laughs> my, my head is elsewhere. And so um, starting in sixth grade, I was all basketball. And I, I write very honestly in my book, right? I grew up with privilege. I grew up with opportunity. That's what parents and grandparents want. You know, they want their kids and grandkids to have more and to have more opportunity. And, and I had all that. And but there was a lot of pressure associated with that. And I, I put a lot of it on myself. You know, I wanted to live up to not only what my dad had achieved on the basketball court, but I knew that I had ancestors who didn't get a chance to live out their dreams. You know, I know I was named after my uncle who passed early, right? So I, basketball, it was it was a mission for me. I loved it, you know, and, and, and to my parents' credit, to my dad's credit, they never forced it on me. They always said, you know, explore your interests and your passion, see what you want to do. But I just loved the game. You know, I, my dad, you know, I wanted to be like my dad. I wanted to play and and I really loved it. And so... But it wasn't casual. You know, for my dad, he went to the playground. Yes, it, it took him away from my uncle's passing. It gave him something to do, something to focus on. But, and I write this in the book, you know, like my dad didn't know he was climbing a mountain. He just looked up one day and he was at, he was there. He was at the top. He just step by step every day. For me, from the time I was a young kid, I had my eyes fixed on the peak and, it's, and it was a long way up. <laughs> it was a long way up. And so I felt that, you know, I felt that pressure. Now, when you look back, and there's, there's two kind of sides, I guess, to this this perspective. There's a lot of conversation these days about, you know, hard times make strong men, and the whole thing goes to basically weak men make hard times again. Um, your dad's genesis to becoming, you know, an elite member of the NBA started out of tragedy, out of hardship. Um, but now, as you said, so many of us want to make our children's lives better. But there's this discussion about where's that happy medium between improving their lives and making sure they're not, you know, a danger of genocide, but at the same time, helicopter parenting and 
right. taking out the adversity so they don't have that drive anymore. Were your parents able to find a middle ground with that element? They did. To, to their credit, they really did. And I learned a lot from them, parenting and how they approached it. And I think it, it was really about values. You know, that they kind of instilled the right values in me. It was about hard work. You know, that that piece of it was was rewarded. But um, yeah, I mean, listen, my and my older sister set a great example for me. She worked so hard. She's a great student. And she really, you know, showed me what that looked like. And and yeah, so and you'll see in the book, like I I pushed myself probably too hard. And that's another piece of it, right? I think that everything is healthy up to a point. I probably surpass that point a little bit and I reached the, the law of diminishing returns there. But yeah, I, I was intrinsically motivated and hungry, but I think my parents did a really good job of making me earn it, not handing things to me. And uh, yeah, so it, it is a delicate balance because of course, like you don't, you don't want your kids to be hungry. You don't want your kids to be in danger, but you want them to earn what they get. You want them to work. You want them to know that things aren't given to you. You know, and and I and I'm honest about this in the book because that was the external perception of me, right? I would and I I worked hard. I was a pretty good player, so I would I tell a story about winning a couple of awards at a basketball camp, and it was the New York Knicks basketball camp, and I won the MVP award, and I was a pretty good player at that point. And the parents booed me because my dad's the GM of the team, right? So they're saying, "Oh, of course the GM's son wins all the awards." Boo, you know. And listen, I don't blame the parents. All parent, parents, well, you know, not saying I would want to boo a young kid, but you get it. You know, kids, parents are protective. But for me, I really learned that, you know, people might not think that I earn what I get, right? There might be judgments and assumptions. And so I really wanted to make a point to make sure that what was mine, that I earned it, that I worked for it. And so it is, it is a delicate balance. And I think my, to my parents' credit, they did a good job for, for me and my sister of letting us know, like, hey, you got to earn your keep. Now, when you said you, you can almost swung too far when it came to the overtraining, I know you, you had an injury as well and you hear this a lot. Um, it must have been, what well, I say, I must have been loading the question now. Was there an element of pressure having a parent that had achieved such a high level of success in the same sport that you were doing of you kind of f feeling like you're living in their shadow and trying to rise to the expectations? Absolutely. And, you know, I never felt like I was living in my dad's shadow. I just felt there was just a lot of pressure to be great, you know, and, and it was always, there were always eyeballs. And by the way, there were benefits to, to those eyeballs too, you know? And so, so there, there are two sides to it all. And I had more opportunities. I had this great role model in my own house who taught me the game. I was grew up in NBA locker rooms. So there were a lot of benefits to how I grew up without a doubt, but yeah, like I did, I always felt pressure. You know, and, and it wasn't from my parents, but it was internal. I wanted it for myself. And I also felt it, as I mentioned, externally. So for all those reasons, yeah, there was pressure. And, and, and I'm very honest in the book, like I had a nervous tick in my eyes as a young kid, just because like I was fighting for so much, you know, as at a very young age. And, and that actually came back when I was in college, you know, I'm playing at Stanford at the, for the number one team in the country, you know, my sophomore year at Stanford, we were the number one basketball team in the country. And, you know, that, that. I still was feeling that pressure because I wasn't having a good year. You know, and I remember even on, on ESPN and, and when I, you know, in the newspaper, Ernie's son, you know, doesn't have what his dad had, you know, and those kind of things, you know, it, it, it wears on you a bit, but 
I, I used it as fuel too. And I was able to really commit myself after that really hard year, my, my sophomore year at Stanford. And, you know, I came back as one of the best players in the country at my position. So you mentioned about playing in Europe. Obviously, there's one of your first countries you play for was a very, very interesting country to go to after all that we've discussed today. What was what was the limiting factor that you, what was that ceiling that you hit that you weren't able to quite get to that level to play in the US and then talk to me about how that took you to to Europe instead. Yeah, so as you mentioned my injury. So my sophomore year at Stanford, I averaged 3.4 points per game. You know, I, I terrible field goal percentage. I just had a really a crappy year. My team was great. Again, number one team in the country, but I was really bad. Worked, you know, really committed myself that summer, did a lot of very extreme things, you know, worked out with a very extreme trainer, which I write about. And it's, um, but the next year I averaged 18 points per game. I was the most improved player in the country in the history of the basketball program. It was my moment. You know, I was the second leading scorer in the conference. I was projected as a first round NBA draft pick. And at the end of the season on national television, Tiger Woods was sitting courtside. Like, you know, you know, the bad things happen at the worst moments. It was, I was having a great game. I took a, the wrong step and I tore my ACL, you know, and it was my grandma, you know, cause she lives out in the Bay area. And I wanted to go to Stanford because she lives out there. She came to every home game I played, you know, she was sitting 20 feet away when I got hurt. And, you know, and I, of course I panicked and I was rolling around on the ground. And when I finally came to my senses, I realized she was kneeling down next to me, rubbing my head, you know, and I write in the book, I don't know how she got down there so fast, you know, but, but she was there, she was there, but listen, that injury, you know, that, that changed the, you know, that changed a lot for me. Uh, it didn't, it didn't end my career, but it certainly derailed things. And so it took me about a year and a half to, to recover, to get back. As you mentioned, started my career in, in Europe. And actually my, my first contract was in Germany. And so I, I write in my book, I'm probably the only professional basketball player who had to call his grandmother to ask permission to sign his first contract. Because, you know, I remember my agent calling me and saying, Hey man, like got you the perfect opportunity, like career starting. We're ready. I said, great, man. Where is it at? So it's in Germany. And the first thing before even, you know, I said, I, I got to call you back. I have to, you know, reach out to my grandma. And that's what I did. And, you know, I'll never forget what she said. She said, you know, sons are not responsible for the sins of their fathers, you know, which is such a great commentary on perspective. You know, you can't blame this generation for what that generation did. And so she blessed it. She said, go to Germany, learn the culture, enjoy your experience there. And I did. And, and I had a good year, you know, I was a second leading scorer on a, on a good team. And I was a leading scorer on my team the next year in, in Spain. And, I was invited to a mini camp with the New York Knicks, you know, which again is full circle because my dad played for the Knicks. I grew up, you know, my dad was a GM of the team and was then invited to training camp. And so I had a chance and I was one of the last guys cut. And so, you know, and at that point I kind of realized that, you know, I had a really good thing going in Europe. There was a big opportunity cost to giving it a go in the NBA. And you, you asked what's, what was the difference? What kept me from there? And it's th those margins are so razor thin. I mean, let's forget the injury, right? Because if the injury doesn't happen, it's a whole different story. But, you know, I, I was good enough. And one of the assistants for the Knicks who would go on to become an NBA head coach, he, every time I see him, he tells me, yeah, you should have made that team. You would have been a great, you know, great kind of like 10th, 11th guy. I said, hey, that's good enough for me. Uh, but, you know, he said, he's like, you know, you were good enough. And so, but I wasn't the best athlete. I didn't have the best size. I wasn't the best at anything. I had a lot of heart. I was good at a lot of things, but you know, in the right, in, in the right situation, I would have made it, but it had to be like, my window was small. It really had to be the perfect fit for me. And, and I, I came close with New York, but it ultimately didn't work out. So, 
you find that a lot, right? You see a lot of times in the NBA where there'll be a guy who is in Europe or who's in the G League, and then they come to the league, and all of a sudden now they're starting and they're playing really well. Guys are good, you know, but and a lot of times you just need that opportunity. You need that situation that works for you. So I'd put myself in that camp, but, you know, I, I needed – I really needed it. You know, I, I was good enough, but I it was it was a long shot for me. Well, as you mentioned, to go – you know, have that that family history, that amazing story, and then find yourself playing in Germany. There is a kind of universal, godlike, um, you know, full circle element to that as well. I lived in Japan in uh, 2001, 2002, and it was interesting. Some of the elderly population, and I have to be fair, like some of my American and Australian counterparts could be a little boisterous in town sometimes after a few beers. So some of the looks were warranted, but you could still sense an anti-American element by some of the the very old people in in Osaka. And ironically, when they discovered that I was English, if ever of them got in conversation, it changed. There was a different kind of perception with the Brits, I guess, because we didn't directly, you know, um, respond to the attacks. We weren't directly bombed by the Japanese. Um, but then I used to ski when I was a young boy in Austria too. And when I look back now, that was back in the 80s. So we're only talking 40 years after World War II when my forefathers and their forefathers were all fighting each other. So, you know, as you, I love what your, your grandmother said about the sins of our, our fathers. It's so, so pertinent. And I think when you get to go back to a country, you also see that most people are not plotting an invasion or a genocide or a war. They're just regular people trying to live their life. And some of these tyrants get in power and, you know, manage to persuade and prey on people through poverty and starvation and some of these other elements. And and then, you know, we see things unfold. So what was that like for you living in Germany for, for you know, with all the things you kind of learned about what the Nazis specifically had done to your family years prior? What was your experience of that year in, in, in modern times? Yeah, I didn't experience aggression towards me for being American. There wasn't much of that. And you know, I was playing on a, a basketball team where there were eight Americans, our coach was American. So it was a little bit insulated, a little bit of a bubble. For me, it was interesting because, yeah, I'm the grandson of Holocaust survivors. But here I am, I'm a pro player trying to make my way as a professional. So there's there's definitely tension there. You know, when we played in Nuremberg, we visited the grounds of the Nuremberg rallies, which were big propaganda, Nazi propaganda events in the 1930s. And, you know, for me, those were somber trips. You know, we went to the, in Berlin, when we played the team in Berlin, we went to the Holocaust Memorial there. You know, and I remember there are computers there and I remember typing in my family's names, you know, and for my other American teammates, you know, not saying that they didn't take it in and it wasn't a somber day, but it's different. You know, my, my family was killed in the Holocaust, right? So, and there were times where I would meet an older German and wonder, you know, I have to be honest about that. There were, and it wasn't at the forefront of my mind. I was trying to, you know, I was making friends. I was playing basketball. I had a great time. I was, tw- by the way, I was 22, 23 years old. So, you know, I was enjoying myself. There's no doubt, but I would meet Germans in their seventies and eighties, you know, the age of my grandmother and wonder what they were doing. And, you know, I, I write about this, right? Because my best friend on my team was my age. He was a German national team player from Berlin. And we got very close. And by the end of the year, we kind of opened up. And I told him about my family's background. But he told me about his family's background. His grandparents were on the other side of the war. And he was telling me about the shame and guilt that his generation feels for what they did, right? Because it's not him. He had nothing to do with it. But they carry that. You know, and I carry my family's history. 
you know? And so we, we kind of had a, just a very real conversation about that. And it was interesting because that was, two, I, my rookie year was 2006 and Germany hosted the world cup of, of soccer football 2006 and they won it. And they had parades and they were waving the flag. And my teammate told me that it scared him because he was all growing up in Germany. It was frowned upon almost like forbidden. Like you don't congregate in mass. You don't wave the flag. Like that nationalism was really, you know, again, like they, they tried to guard against it because of what has happened, what had happened. So I remember him talking to me about winning the world cup, but then it being scary to see it, you know, because they had learned about, what happened in, in the thirties and forties and, and, it, and by, you know, do anything in their power, never let it happen again. And so listen, man, life is complicated. People, human beings are complicated. As you said, it's usually not like the populace. It's usually, and again, like we turn on the news today and we see all two real examples of, of people who can influence world events and in such, you know, awful, troublesome, problematic, heartbreaking ways, you know, and I think that that's happened throughout history. Well, you touched on a, a very important point as well. I think I heard Tim Kennedy kind of really highlighting the difference, but people look at patriotism as a dangerous thing. And I think it's nationalism that's a, pa a dangerous thing. That's what we really attribute to, you know, the, the far right and, you know, the far left, all, all these freaking... Out, huge outlier extremists that cause all the problems, whatever they hail from. But patriotism, being proud of your nation, getting behind the the national team, you know, is a beautiful thing. And sadly, nationalism is what what allowed the Nazis to rise to fame. So you know, when you see, for example, the um, oh god, what they call the insurrection, I saw elements of nationalism. That wasn't patriotism. That was, you know, Nazi like Nazi esque behavior that resulted in death and destruction and and heartbreak, um, and you could, you know, parallel exactly the same on on choose whatever the polar opposite of those shitbags are on the other side, you know. So, but what's sad is that now there's this kind of shaming of the national flags, whether it's the National Front in in the UK shaming the, the Union Jack or whether it's you know whoever shaming the American here, and that's dangerous too because you're now dissecting the country and pigeonholing people rather than being united under that flag so i love watching you know the olympics for example where you see athletes being supportive of each other and being proud to represent the flag that they're competing under yeah agreed i think that's what's so compelling about the olympics and so moving and and again like the power of sport to, to bring people together and and to show respect and admiration that's, one, that's something that's so great about – I'm a basketball player, right? So you go at it with someone and you battle and you compete. But then after the game, you know, you hug it out, you give props, you know, you you give the respect. And and I think, you know, love well, love is always stronger than hate, right? So like when you see in the Olympics countries where, yeah, they they show each other that respect and, and admiration on, on the field of competition – it's moving and you hope that it kind of translates outward where we can respect others, you know, and, and, and yeah, it's, of course we have a long way to go in so many ways, but I, I agree with you that there is something that we shouldn't, you know, take for granted about being proud of, of who you are, where you come from and lifting yourselves up and lifting others up too. Well, just to touch on one more thing before we transition to the book, um, you mentioned about playing for Romania and also I know you play in, in Israel too. So talk to me about those, you know, the, the journeys that took you to those two places. So Romania, 
I, I didn't play there professionally. I played for the national team. So it was kind of like a summer thing. Uh, I didn't, my stint didn't last very long there, but you know, I, I became a Romanian citizen because it helped me with my professional career because they were part of the EU and there are quotas about Americans overseas. And so I played in Spain at the time and it really helped me in Spain. And so, you know, I write like my parents, my grandparents spent like more than a decade trying to get out of Romania. I was trying to get back, you know, to, not like to live there, but to get the citizenship. And so, you know, played for the national team very briefly, but Israel, you know, I played professionally for four years and that was, you know, that's where I ended my career and very, again, like talk about coming full circle. And that's why, that's why I wrote the book. Like my family story, just naturally, like everything kind of connected and came full circle. And you know, I played in the Maccabea games in 2009, which is kind of like the Jewish Olympics. And my dad had played in 1973. And you know, that was my first time in, in Israel in 2009. And it was a life-changing experience, you know, knowing that it was Israel that was there to open its arms to my family after the Holocaust and to families like ours. It's where the majority of our family you know, lived then, still lives to this day. It's where my family was headed to before at the last minute they came to the United States. And so just being there was so moving. And I remember telling my sister, I was in Spain, playing in Spain, but I said, you know, when my contract's up, I'm going to come to Israel and finish my career here. And that's what I did. Four years in Israel, you know, two years playing for the team in Jerusalem. You know, so for my dad to be the only athlete whose parents survived the Holocaust to wear number 18 for the Knicks, and for me to play for Jerusalem, you know, it's something really meaningful about that. And it was just wonderful experience on the basketball court off of it, you know, reconnecting with family, the history, the food, you know, just being in Israel, everything about it was just incredible. Yeah, I, I, I can't say enough about it. And I always when when we talk about like traveling and people ask, like, where's the best place you visited or where do you want to go I, I, or where should I go? I say go to Tel Aviv, go to Israel. Like there's, there's nothing like it. Well, again, sadly, when people think of Israel, they think of the Gaza Strip, they think of Palestine, they think again of multi-generational conflict. Um, what was it like? Tell me, you know, what was your experience and, 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 you know, speak for, you know, everyday life in, in regular Israel rather than the kind of doom and gloom reporting that we get here. And by the way, I, I thought the same thing before I had been, you know, cause there's always conflict. And of course my, my mom was worried about me going like there, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't immune from that either. I was just shocked, you know, being in Israel. I mean, I, and people would always ask like, do you feel safe there? And I would answer truthfully, I felt safer in Israel than I did, you know, in the States, you know, there was just cause there's, there's security and there's just something about it. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful country. It's kind of like, you know, Tel Aviv, we said it's kind of like South beach, you know, uh, in Miami, but bigger and brighter and bolder. Like, it's just an amazing place. Like I said, there's great culture, there's great people, there's great food, the history, you can't beat it. It's not just Jewish history, it's the cradle of civilization. You know, you go to Jerusalem, the the, the three major religion, like it's, it's just an, it's a fascinating place. It's a wonderful place. And so I and my wife and I both, like we just love living there. We have, again, family there, such dear friends. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Beautiful. Well, again, it's it's just so amazing to hear all these kind of intersecting circles from all the generations. So you talked about ending your career there. So walk me through what you decided to do after you left basketball and then the genesis of the book. I was, oh, I, I liked being a student. You know, it's about my grandma says the same thing about herself. She says, I was probably the only kid who liked going to class. 
you know, but her education was disrupted by the Holocaust. She never got a chance, you know, past, you know, maybe fifth, sixth grade. She was, she didn't get a chance to be formally educated. And so I had a chance to go to Stanford, you know, which is, which is a, you know, a good university. And I wanted to make the most of that. And so I was proud. I was an academic All-American there. I really committed myself and I knew that I wanted to go back to school. And so my last year playing professionally, I studied for the GMAT, which is to go to business school. And I joked that I spent probably more time or more focus on that test than on my basketball. And it kind of showed like I did well on the test, but I kind of sucked it up on the basketball court. But, you know, I was able to kind of transition and I got back into Stanford. So I got my MBA there. I thought that was important for me for several reasons, you know, because I had spent eight years playing professional basketball. I basically had a PhD in basketball, right? But I'm 30 years old and the ball stopped bouncing and you have your whole life ahead of you. And so I wanted to kind of acquire some of those hard skills, learn about myself and went to business school, joined a startup when I was in school, which was uh, using virtual reality as a training tool uh, in sports, but then also at the enterprise level. So training employees of corporations. So was with the company through business school, stayed with the company after, grew it nicely. Then I transitioned to a venture capital firm, which I, so now I'm helping other startups grow and scale. And uh, while I was playing basketball professionally, I had contributing writing positions to several websites. Writing has always been one of the great loves of my life. Actually, when I was a kid, my mom always said, he's going to be a writer. Because after my basketball practices, I would come home and write. She knew, like my parents knew that. No one, no one else really knew that. I just loved doing it. And so I had done a lot of writing. It had been going, you know, going pretty well for me. And I knew that this, what we've been talking about, Jeff, like all this stuff, this was the story. You know, this is just like, it like lived in my heart. Like it did. It's just like, I always felt it. Like, and I was like, you know, this was the project. And I remember once I started business school, looking at my wife and being like, you know, now's the time, you know, we had talked about it. Like, oh, like I was like, I want to tell this story. I want to try. And I remember saying, now's the time. And, you know, it's funny because we talked about like, what about what, what made my dad so successful as a player? What did he learn from his parents? And for me, the process of writing a book, it was basketball that really prepared me because I was used to getting up early in the morning and, and setting my mind to a goal and doing what I had to do to achieve it. And so the book was no different. You know, it was really about discipline, man. I did a year and a half of research to try to understand everything. And there was a lot, you know, I to know what happened to all of my grandparents, siblings during the Holocaust, all these different journeys. It was a lot. But once I got the history, you know, I woke up at 6.02 AM every morning, you know, for eight months and, and wrote for, you know, an hour and a half, two hours. And got my first draft done. And after that, it was just, you know, years of editing, iterating, finding an agent, finding a publisher. Uh, the book was published, you know, in November, late November, 2021. And listen, I, I didn't write the book to be like a commercial endeavor. You know, I wrote it because it means the world to me. Uh, but that being said, now that I wrote it, like, of course, you want people to engage with the story, you want to transmit the history. And so I'm really proud that you know, the book, I we, they had to do a paperback printing six months early because it sold out. Like, it's it been touching people, you know? And, and I think it's not, listen, I wrote it and I, I tried to do my best with it, but it's my family. It's what my grandparents overcame. It's what my dad overcame. It's just the story. You know, the story is really moving people. And so I'm really grateful for that. And it's, you know, it's it's been so cool. And I got, you know, 30 basketball fans listening, you know, Ray Allen, who's was named one of the top 75 players in NBA history recently, wrote the foreword for my book. You know, he was appointed to the board of the Holocaust Museum by President Obama. You know, a few people know that he's a really, he made it his life's mission to educate people about the Holocaust. And, you know, so I know Ray and 
you know, he wrote this amazing forward. And so, yeah, it's, listen, I, I used to think my dream was to play in the NBA, but this book is really my dream, man, just to, to share this. Cause this is bigger than basketball. You know, this is bigger to, 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 to read about overcoming things to this level and to stay positive and to stay hopeful. This is, this is really what it's about. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that it's gotten the response that it has. And it was really the honor of my life to tell it. That's amazing. And just getting a, you know, a, a, glimpse into the story just in this hour and a half has been incredible but i'm i'm you know i'm sure the book is you know captivating and there's so many takeaways just in the conversation we've had now i mean all all the different perspectives from these different generations with different you know backgrounds some you know truly life-threatening and some like yours being born into into affluence and having a successful family i mean these these are such valuable perspectives so thank you for sharing it now where if people listening where are the best places to find it yeah, so th- I want to say available wherever books are sold, but it's because it's it's a good problem to have that it's been selling out, but it's definitely available at Amazon. Uh, we try to support independent bookstores. I hope your local independent bookstore will have it. I'll show you know a little trade se- secret. Amazon still has some hardcovers, which is pretty cool. Uh, but you know, because the uh, but the paperback is really the the dominant version now. But definitely Amazon. You can definitely check at your local bookstore. We want to support local, but. Just really, you know, really grateful for people engaging with the story because, again, it's, you know, it's one that not only means a lot to me, but I think is just, it's relevant. And, you know, it's unfortunately more relevant in the last six weeks or so, you know, with what's going on. I mean, there are scenes on the news that could be taken straight out of the book. You know, and I've had so many people from around the world reach out to me about the feeling of hope that they get from knowing that there are brighter days ahead. You know, so like things like that are why you do it, you know. So, again, like, yeah, just grateful for anyone who wants to check it out beautiful well i want to throw some closing questions at you before i let you go we talked about your book are there any other books that you love to recommend that can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated uh, how long do we have that's that's <laughs> an awesome question man so listen my favorite book of all time is the count of monte cristo Okay, so I've read it eight times, four unabridged, four abridged. The unabridged version is like 1,600 pages, right? I, I try to read it every three years because I think that I just look at it differently. I actually just finished it like six months ago again. Uh, I, I love that book. I think it just has so – there's just so much in it that I just think it, it's just um, – by the way, that's not breaking news, right? People know that's a great book, so it's not like I uncovered a gem, but it truly is a masterpiece. So Count of Money Cristo, a book – that I love that's kind of like adjacent to mine and that I kind of drew some inspiration from is a book called The Boys in the Boat, which is about the U.S. Olympic rowing team, the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. And um, it just, you know, it's it's a sports story that's not about sports. And that's what my book is, right? It's a basketball story that's not about basketball. It's a human interest story. It's about life. And and this is about the the boys in the boat, the people who came together from different backgrounds, from different walks of life and did something really special together. Love that book. Um, I can give one more that I think is important. And because we, we've talked about the Holocaust and we see things happening in today's world that are really scary. Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl is a, is a great Holocaust, is a great book that I think there's a lot of wisdom there. There's a lot of really important lessons there. Absolutely. No, that's, that's funny. I would say probably least 15, probably 20% of people ask this question to say man's search for meaning. And I've got it sitting right in front of me now, but it's an incredible book. And, you know, I, I, 
I would have loved to have interviewed him, but it's also amazing. I think he only wrote that one book and it's a shame because he had so much wisdom and it's such a small book as well. But I mean, my goodness, if you've, you know, got, as you said, about an hour and a half, two hours, I mean, you could almost read the entire book in that one session. Yeah, that's right. It's right. It's not that long, but there's just so much packed in there about, yeah, about life, about the, about meaning. I read the title, Man's Search for Meaning. And you know, for, like he he survived Auschwitz, and then right, he became this really well-renowned doctor, right, a psychiatrist, I think. And so, just to understand like how man could go through so much and what it what it means to be human, how you get through, yeah, that's that's a powerful one. Absolutely. All right. Well, then, on the same kind of theme, what about a film or documentary or, or one of each? Film or documentary? Wow, that that's a great one. I'll tell you what. If you just say like, what's my favorite movie? Again, there's no breaking news here. Forrest Gump is a movie, man, that like, again, like that's a good one. That's another good one, like every three years, because I just see different pieces of it, right? Like, you know, and and I'll I'll get, I'll I'll cry at that movie, like having seen it like 20 times, but like from different parts. And it's funny, like I became a parent and then I watched it. And then his relationship with his mom struck me differently, right? And then his relationship with his friend, like there's just all these parts of it. So that is a movie that I just think I, everyone has seen it a million times, but it, it, it deservedly so. I think it's a really powerful movie that I love. Uh, a documentary. That's that's a great question. Um, all right. It's a great question. It's also an easy question because it just came to me. Hoop Dreams. Hoop Dreams is a documentary film about basketball that I think it came out in the early-ish to mid-90s. It's it's a masterpiece too. Like it was, it's critically acclaimed, renowned, regarded as one of the greatest sports documentaries of all time. I'm very proud to say that I'm friends with the with the people who were featured in the movie because I was on their podcast and we hit it off. And so like I just like love this movie. And now I get to I know the the characters who were you know, they were high school kids at the time and now they're, you know, and they're, I think early fifties, right? So they're men. And so like, uh, very cool that I know these guys, but that's, that's also same kind of same vein of like sports story. That's bigger than sports. It's about people's lives. You know, it's about two kids growing up in the inner city of Chicago and dealing with the trials and tribulations of their lives, basketball, you know, as a vehicle for both of them in different ways and how it take, brings them together, brings them apart. It's long, it's funny because it's really long. And so my wife and I watched it probably six months ago before I was on the podcast. And I said to her, Hey, are you up for this tonight? And she said, yeah, but like, it's long. So I, we might not be able to finish it all because it was late. She was glued. Like we, we stayed up for an hour after we were done talking about it. So like, that's just a little endorsement that like, yeah, my wife's stamp of approval for sure. It's a great one. Hoop dreams. Beautiful. I've heard of it. I don't know if I've ever seen it. So I'm going to have to put that on the top of my list as well. Do you know what you should also look at the reviews? Because I had just seen it as a kid and I was like, oh, it's an awesome movie. It's about hoops. Like I love it. It's but if you look at like the the reviews of the movie, there are like there are film critics saying that it's a masterpiece. That is like in the world of filmmaking, that it's like one of the greats. And so that's pretty cool. Not that if you like a movie, you like a movie, you don't need people to confirm that for you, but it is cool to know that it's so highly regarded. It's it's really a special movie. Brilliant. All right. Well, the last question before we make sure people know where to find you, what do you do to decompress? 
it's funny because you know I, I told you like my second son was born a few weeks ago so i'm like decompress like that that's an <laughs> what is that concept <laughs> like relaxing sleep like i'd like any of those things you know what honestly like writing is a huge way for me because i just like get lost in that i mean I, I do that for hours and hours and it just takes the air out of the tire for me love to read love to write i also meditate i don't do it as much as i should i did it when i was playing I think it saved my career at one point. I read about that in the book. Like, yeah. So, but meditation is, has been really important for me. And so, uh, yeah, with all those things, all of them in one way or another, help me decompress and, you know, listen, like spending time with family, being with my wife and kids, like that's, that's what I'm about. And that's what really gives, gives me, you know, my strength and everything like that. And so, uh, yeah, hopefully we talk again in, in, two months, three months, once my little guy is kind of up and running, I'll have more more time to properly decompress. Yeah. Well, again, meditation is a, a resounding you know, answer on this question too. And I, I meditate myself. Um, and you, it's amazing how so many people that, you know, if they're on here, obviously they're, they're thriving in some, some way, shape or form. And it's a consistent thing that people talk about, yet in the general public, it's still very, you know, viewed as very woo-woo. But when you look at high-level tactical athletes, high-level athletes, you know, high-level business performers, so many of them actually utilize this tool not only for performance but obviously for mental wellness as well. Hundred percent. I mean, I'm big, big on meditation. I know a lot of athletes who swear by it. I'll actually call out another book, "The Power of Now" uh, by Eckhart Tolle, uh, is, is you know about mindfulness and you know, there there's some woo-woo components to that that book, and I know like different people have different thoughts about it. I found it to be very powerful, very important book. And yeah, man, I think like being present in the moment, learning how to kind of control your thought processes, which I struggled with my whole life, you know, that that's been a bit a weakness of mine. And so yeah, meditation has been a big part of that for me. Brilliant. Now for people listening, are you, where are the best place to find you online? And are you on any of the social media um, outlets or whatever the word would be? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter, Dan underscore Grunfeld. I'm on Facebook, Dan Grunfeld. I'm on Instagram, dan.grunfeld. Uh, I have a book website, dangrunfeld.com. So, you know, and I know there, there's an email address through the website where people can reach out and that gets to me too. So I love to engage. I love to interact. And particularly like if people are moved by stories like this, I, you know, lo love to chat. So please, anyone who, who cares to would love to uh, love to hear from folks. And yeah, man, just grateful for this opportunity to have an awesome conversation with you. Well, Dan, I just want to say that. Thank you. I mean, it's been, it's such an amazing, you know, uh, I feel so, what's the right way of putting this? Hold on. I get right to the very end and I trip over my tongue. <laughs> it's an honor hearing, you know, one person's story, but to hear a multi-generational story and see how those dominoes are fall, fall in a certain way and these, like I said, these full circles that seem to occur over and over again, it's been so incredibly powerful and there were so many, you know, lessons that I've learned personally from this conversation. So I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Oh, you got it, man. Thanks so much for having me. And I'll tell you, my grandmother, she she really is something special. So I when I when I speak to groups, you know, I ask, have you ever met a Holocaust survivor? And a lot of people say they have. And I said, well, read my book because you'll meet one. You'll meet my grandma, you know, and she she's the star of our family. She's the star of the story. So I'm, I'm very uh, grateful to be able to share some of her lessons and some of her her story and our own story, man. So thank you for having me.